Ladies and gentlemen, good afternoon. Uh, we would like to thank uh, Capital Inc. for giving us the opportunity to discuss this hot, very hot potato item, which uh, actually is going to be the topic of discussion in the years to come, the decarbonization. It is very well known that shipping is the most efficient mode of transportation moving around 90% of world trade. At the present, shipping is under fire, under the gun, to reduce the greenhouse gases, focusing on the, most, uh, on the highest offender, who is carbon dioxide. We march towards a carbon-free society. Last April, IMO has uh, introduced the strategy and the targets to achieve this decarbonization. Allow me to point out the discrepancy here. The previous panel discussed about the need for more low sulfur fuel. And then we are asking the refineries to invest a few billion dollars, actually a lot of billion dollars, to produce more low sulfur fuel. At the same time, we are telling them we are not going to use that fuel, we are going to use carbon-free fuels in the future. Uh, well, this panel has the ambition to shed some light on this uh, issue of decarbonization and advance a little bit the state of the art. I will start with our permanent panelist, uh, Mr. Adamson, Lee Adamson, who is uh, uh, the head of public relations and communications at IMO. Lee, all of our eyes are on you. They were last week in London. I know you had a very busy week. We appreciate you being here. And we are going to look at you more intensively in the future. I would like to ask you, what is the promulgated IMO strategy and targets to achieve this decarbonization? Uh, well, thank you. It seems that I sit here the longest and say the least. Um, but uh, I hope you understand and excuse me for that. Um, uh, once again, I could go into a long uh, list of what IMO has done and what the global community has done um, to address this problem uh, in, in history. And I suspect there's probably not a huge appetite for that in the room, so I'll gloss over that very quickly. Um, simply just to say that there is a quite a, a very strong legal genesis for IMO's uh, involvement in this, in this topic. And again, um, it goes back to the 1980s when the International Panel for Climate Change was formed. It first reported in 1990, reported to the Rio Earth Summit in 1992, which adopted the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change. Um, a subsequent protocol to that convention, the Kyoto Protocol in 1997, very specifically, as well as setting targets for the industrialized world, it gave the mandate to IMO and to the uh, International Civil Aviation Authority, ICAO, to UN agencies. It gave them the mandate to address 
um, climate change and greenhouse gas emission reduction from shipping and aviation, uh, respectively. Uh, since then, there's been a long series of steps forward, which again, I'm, I'm not going to go through because I suspect there's not the appetite in the room to hear all of that, and you probably know it all anyway. Um, the specific question is, what is it that IMO has um, specifically adopted in terms of its, uh, its strategy moving forward? Um, in 2016, it adopted a so-called road map, which is rather ironic for a maritime organization, but nevertheless, a road map for the development of an initial greenhouse gas strategy to be adopted by 2018, leading to a revised strategy to be adopted by 2023. Now, this is 2018, and um, bang on target with that roadmap. The initial strategy has been adopted. Um, and it's a long document, as these things tend to be, but I think the key parts that um, are going to be of interest to people are what's called the vision and the levels of ambition. And briefly to summarize, the, the vision is um, that uh, greenhouse gas emissions from ships will be phased out as soon as possible within this century. Um, that's backed up by levels of ambition, and there are essentially three levels of ambition, and, 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 and I risk straying into the technical areas that I feel very unqualified to talk about, but nevertheless, uh, one of the first, or the first level of ambition talks about the carbon intensity of shipping, which is to decline by tightening the EEDI, the energy, efficiency, uh, the energy Efficiency Design Index for ships. Um, and that's for each individual ship. So carbon intensity of ships will decline by tightening the EEDI. The second one is that the carbon intensity of shipping across the sector will decline by at least 40% by 2030 and pushing towards 70% by 2050. And that's against a 2008 baseline. And the third is that total emissions from the sector, so as I understand it, that's not specifically or specifically not linked to the transport work, it's total emissions from the sector uh, are to decline by at least 50% by 2050 and to be phased out on a pathway that is consistent with the Paris Agreement goals. Um, and, to, and to my knowledge, exactly what that means is not spelt out. Um, but it's called a level of ambition. Uh, what happened at the most recent uh, Marine Environment Protection Committee, which was only last week, was that a series of follow-up actions, so-called, were, uh, were approved. Um, and these require, or they request, the IMO member states um, to present concrete proposals to address um, short-term measures to start achieving those levels of ambition at the next meeting of the Marine Environment Protection Committee um, which is going to be in May 2019. Remember, all of this is part of a roadmap leading from an initial strategy, now adopted, to a revised strategy, which the IMO has to deliver by 2023. 
and that's it from me so far. Thank you. Thank you very much, Lee. Uh, just as a comment, this uh, EDI reduction, which is considered to be a short-term measure, is essentially a hidden slow steaming, uh, like the 20% phase, 20% reduction of EDI is equivalent to reduce, reducing the speed by 10%. Uh, now, let's hear the operator's perspective. Uh, Pano Zachariadis, a long-time colleague from the University of Michigan, uh, is a well-known crusader, is a big supporter of IMO, but at the same time, he produces very constructive criticism, and I have learned over the years to think twice and take his uh, thoughts very seriously. So, Panos, at the present, we look at the decarbonization, allow me to say, as a summer night, summer's night dream. What is your opinion of what has to be done in order to make this a feasible uh, task? Thank you, thank you, Yanni. Um, before saying what has to be done, I'd like to start with what should not be done. Because uh, sometimes the, the truth is difficult. Uh, addressing the real problems is even more difficult. And we as humans, and especially the politicians, uh, uh, the member states at IMO, um, they, they like to take easy solutions. And unfortunately, easy solutions mean pretend solutions. We pretend uh, we do something, and then I'm sure 2030 we're going to be pretending that we are successful. But let's, let's talk about the nuts and bolts of the issue. Um, e strengthening EDI, for example, um, like you said, doesn't mean too many things. It's not any, any big achievement because there are easy ways to strengthen EDI. So you say the future EDI of ships should be 30% below the baseline. Okay, you install a smaller engine. You achieve your target by installing a smaller engine. But depending on what the market wants, what speeds the market wants, you may have to run this engine near 100% to achieve the speed that the market demands, the end result being that this ship, although compliant with stricter EDI requirements, is actually burning more fuel for the same speed and for the same cargo uh, because it needs to go to the speed that the market requires than another ship with a higher EDI, larger engine, but able to run the engine at the optimum 70% uh, operating point. So uh, the, the target, what is the target? The target is to stop global warming and reverse it. And just quickly, I would like to say that Mr. Gonis in the morning made, made a comment that sometimes IMO comes out with competing regulations, one against the other. And the regulation that the previous panel was discussing, the sulfur uh, limit, is exactly a competing regulation to the one we're discussing now. Because sulfur oxides in the atmosphere have a huge cooling effect uh, to the earth, to the atmosphere. 
And in my opinion, uh, and like Mr. Vastaruchas correctly said, it's a health issue. Uh, but and it, uh, sulfur oxide should not fall into land. But what is the point to limit them at the middle of the Pacific Ocean and the Atlantic Ocean when sulfur oxides only live in the atmosphere for four days, three to four days? And at the same time, they provide a huge cooling effect uh, to the atmosphere, which we are now taking away. So to me, that's a directly competing regulation to what we're trying to do here. And I, I don't know if I have some time to go very quickly into the alternative fuels that we're discussing, and some people see as panacea, but they are not. When we're talking about decarbonization, LNG is a carbon fuel, uh, hydrogen, which 95% of the hydrogen right now that's produced uh, on the earth comes from LNG and not from water electrolysis. And even the one that comes from water electrolysis, which is only 4%, needs huge amounts of electricity uh, to produce one kilo of hydrogen, 55 kilowatt hours of electricity to produce one kilo of hydrogen, which electricity comes from the city grid. And the city grid has an average of 0.7 CO2 to the atmosphere per kilowatt hour. So to produce one kilogram of hydrogen from electricity, we emit about more than 40 uh, kilograms of CO2 to the atmosphere. And on and on, methanol comes from LNG. Um, ammonia, ammonia comes from hydrogen. If you add nitrogen, which you get from the air. Uh, LPG, um, which is butane and, and propane, uh, yes, very small benefit when you burn uh, uh, propane, 10% uh, less than burning liquid fuels, but it's, it's available in very small quantities. It's actually a byproduct of LNG extraction or fuel oil refining. Um, biofuels, very controversial. Um, uh, the jury is still out whether, whether to manufacture the fertilizers you need, the pesticides you need, actually uh, is more carbon intensive than, than whatever saving uh, biofuels have when you burn them. So there are no easy solutions. I just said uh, what misconceptions we should not have going towards decarbonization, and then maybe we can discuss uh, decarbonization a little later on. Thanks. Thank you very much. Speaking of fuels, we are blessed to have in this panel a fuel expert, uh, Mr. Bill Stamatopoulos, who is uh, the manager of very few fuel services. We are sailing the same boat at Bureau Veritas, and we are very happy to have him sailing with us. So I would like to exploit his expertise, and uh, speaking of fuels, I would like to ask him about the advantages and uh, disadvantages of one potential future fuel, that is bio-derived uh, fuels, and at the same time, allow me to exploit him a little bit more. He's an expert on what can go wrong, what is bad in a fuel. So what needs to be done, Bill, to ensure that we have uh, a uniform and harmonized uh, and uh, good quality standards for future fuels. So it's a double tier question. Thank you for the warm uh, introduction. Let's start with uh, 
the latest uh, ISO A2117 edition of uh, 2017 that has a major change when it comes to the term fuels. So far we knew it was a homogeneous blend of uh, hydrocarbons derived from petroleum refining. Now the fuel term has a completely different meaning. It could be hydrocarbons from petroleum crude oil, shale or oil sands. It could be hydrocarbons from synthetic or renewable sources, similar to what we know as petroleum distillate products, or it could be blends of the above with fame, with fatty acid methyl esters when permitted. The bio-derived uh, fuels and the blend of bio-derived fuels are included in the range of potentially alternative energy sources because they are renewable and can result in uh, reduced uh, greenhouse uh, gases. That's why the latest edition includes uh, three new grades in distillates with a connotation of uh, DF that may contain up to 7% of fame. Now, withstanding that fame has good uh, ignition and combustion properties and some perceived environmental benefits, they have some complications that are related to uh, oxidation and long-term storage issues for more than four to six months, typically in a bunker tank, and affinity to water and risk to microbial growth, and some issues with degraded uh, cold flow properties. On the positive side, of course, we know that uh, next to the environmental benefits, you are getting a nice uh, lubricity. So you have to ensure that uh, if you want to go this direction, that the ship's storage, handling, treatment, service, and machinery are compatible with such a product. But all in all, I also need to stress this holistic and pragmatic approach that Panos brought up uh, for example, we have a camp suggesting that uh, the sulfur standard for the road petrol for the cars is 100 times better than the sulfur content in the emission control areas. So we can desulfurize fuels to deliver better air quality benefits, and we don't need to change all the associated bunkering infrastructure to run, for example, on LNG. I know that Adonis will comment on this. This is correct. However, we need to know that when the refineries are hydro-treating, they are increasing their own CO2 emissions by 10 to 12%. Another example pointing to this direction is talking about the high sulfur fuel oil and the scrubbers. A high sulfur fuel oil price drop could make it attractive for example, to Middle Eastern consumers to use it for air conditioning at a lower cost. So relatively cheap and polluting fuel will find the market regardless the environmental impact. So high sulfur fuel oil could prove to be attractive for nations trying to save on cost for power generation, but what about the health issue? So to achieve the target of a more sustainable footprint, Measures may include a combination of alternative fuels, probably carbon pricing or uh, new shipbuilding rules, considering at the same time some mitigation measures to ease the financial burden, but taking into consideration a holistic and sustainable approach. 
regarding the second question, when it comes to harmonize the fuel oil quality, it's a huge, it's a huge issue. We know that ships are the incinerators of the refining industry for so many years. Heavy fuel oils have been traditionally a byproduct of the refineries. They consist of what is left over when the valuable streams have been extracted through the distillation and the cracking process and are sold at prices below the crude cost. The banker supply from refinery to the point of the actual delivery to the ship varies enormously and it can be huge and very long. The final product may be a blend of components that cannot be easily identified. So you need to make checks and controls to make sure that the final quality of the product is not compromised. As we saw, for example, in Houston, uh, there was a huge issue with the blending component used. And this is why EBI came up with uh, the guidelines stating that uh, the supplier should maintain a database of suitable and unsuitable blending components based on experience, industry knowledge, and reported incidents to develop appropriate blend modeling tools to test the unfamiliar blends fully against the ISO specification, meaning the table and the general clause. And finally, the member states should take some responsibility because they have committed under MARPOL Annex 6 to take action against suppliers that are caught supplying unsuitable fuel. Thank you. Thank you very much. Kostas Vlachos is uh, the general manager of uh, Consolidated Marine Management, soon to be renamed to Latsko Marine. Kostas, uh, his uh, company is operating uh, very large LPG carriers. So the last, uh, from what I remember, the last six years, their strategy is to build and operate large LPG carriers, uh, and LNGs, of course. But uh, I would like to ask him a very simple question. Costas, to LNG or LPG? Why LPG and why not uh, LNG? <coughs> Thank you, Yanis. Uh, uh, this is a good question, but very tricky question. Uh, you put me in the position to, to fight with Andonis here because he is a supporter of LNG. Of course, because of the operation of uh, very large gas carriers, as you mentioned before, we are very familiar with LPG, but I don't want uh, to restrict uh, uh, my reference only to LPG carriers. I would like to say that the alternative solution of all those uh, things that we are discussing today about uh, sulfur and uh, the greenhouse emissions is the LPG. Why it is the LPG? Because uh, the LPG is really an environmental excellence solution since by adopting LPG as a fuel, you can reduce by 97% per the uh, SOX emissions compared with heavy fuel oil. This is the first. The second one is that uh, you will reduce by 90% the particulate uh, matters, again, compared with uh, high fuel oil, uh, high sulfur fuel oil or 
compliant fuel, uh, fuel oils. You will reduce by 25% the greenhouse gases and especially the CO2 emissions. And uh, you will reduce by 20% the nitrogen uh, oxides uh, emissions. So the LPG is a green uh, solution. And I would say we can put the LPG in the uh, mid-term uh, solutions of the IMO. This means a solutions for the decade 2020-2030. Besides that, we have available technology. The main engine uh, LGI is already in operation and therefore you can adopt, uh, an operator can adopt this solution uh, easily and immediately. The LPG uh, is available anywhere. I don't agree with uh, what Pano said that you cannot find. You, cannot, you, you can find LPG everywhere and we use for years in, for household uh, purposes the LPG. And uh, by adopting an operator, the solution of LPG resolves uh, the matter of bunkering because the vessel doesn't deviate at all in order to make a bunkering. Uh, there are in operation on around 750 uh, pressurized LPG carriers that may supply a vessel everywhere. And of course, by adopting a, a deck uh, solution, you can uh, get uh, uh, the LPG as a fuel when you are an LPG carrier, of course, in any, ter in any one terminal. The LPG propulsion means uh, a cleaner and a cheaper to maintain uh, propulsion. And of course, by adopting this solution, you avoid the risk of uh, oil pollution, which is uh, quite important, especially when the vessels are operating in a sensitive area. Last but not least, because of the higher content of energy that LPG has, you may reduce by 11% uh, the fuel consumption, and of course you may reduce by 18% the EDI. So this is a solution that uh, supports the mid-term uh, measures of the IMO. These are the reasons that we believe that the LPG is a solution that is not so well known, but it is easily adopted if you look carefully to this solution. Thank you very much. Uh, evidently, let's underline that LPG is not uh, actually propane and butane, uh, is not a greenhouse gas because it's heavier than air and goes down, whereas methane is lighter than air and goes up in the atmosphere, so it is a GHG gas. Uh, the next uh, and last uh, panelist, uh, but not the least, comes from the heroic city of Hania, a young promising engineer who is the technical manager of Arista Shipping, the main driving force behind the project forward, advocating the utilization of uh, uh, LNG in bulk carriers. Adonis Trakakis uh, is uh, going to reply to the question, who pays the ferryman? You know, the ferryman is 
the guy who takes the souls to the other side. And we put the coins in their eyes to pay the ferryman. Shipping is not a cash cow. So I have the question, who will pay the ferryman Antonis? Dr. Gokaragis, thank you very much for the honor to be present in this uh, prestigious panel today. Uh, I fully agree that decarbonization is uh, maybe the biggest problem we encounter today in shipping. It's, I think, far bigger than, than 2020. And quite possibly, if we limit our attention only to 2020, we'll have to revisit our selections when we have to address the decarbonization issue. And uh, the problem is that uh, where we want to arrive, it is really very far away from where we stand today. And uh, the problem, as you said very correctly before, is that shipping is extremely energy efficient, meaning that uh, there are very few margins available to exploit for us to improve our emissions. The only way to do this is to do things different. Actually, our project forward has shown that uh, if we want to meet the most stringent IMO requirements for uh, 2050, the required speed reduction will be in the order of uh, seven knots, which is practically impossible as it really disrupts the chain of logistics. But it is possible in a fuel mix of 50-50 with between fossil LNG and the carbon neutral methane. Therefore, there are solutions, and apparently one uh, pillar of this decarbonization issue is engineering, and engineers are willing to take the challenges. But, uh, as we know from the second uh, law of Newton, for every change, we need a force. And uh, today, what is the force that will push owners to adopt engineering solutions and to move into making real what we are requested to do when there are no incentives, no payback, and absolutely no support from the market? There is no force. Then simply, it will not happen. Very simple. But then, setting targets alone is not a sustainable mode of future growth and development, not only for shipping, for the whole society. Because the issue of decarbonization is not a problem of shipping. Shipping is requested to join the society to address a very serious problem. And since the consequences and benefits of decarbonization will be shared by the whole society, equally well, the cost has to be shared. Therefore, it is not fair and it is not possible to consider that shipowners alone will bear all these costs. And it's much better to make investments now rather than at a later stage when the situation will not be reversible anymore. And uh, to summarize and to put it in very simple words, everything is possible, but sadly, without money, there will be no honey. And allow me to say that if financial incentives are not provided, then follow this advice by Chris De Berg. Don't pay the ferryman. We can dance. So we finished the first round uh, of questions by the panel. I believe it is very instructive to uh, have a discussion uh, 
from the audience. So I would like to, we have many questions. This is a huge topic. Uh, if you don't have, I will ask, but I prefer that we get questions from the audience. So please uh, ask your questions. Yes. Thank you. This is a question for Mr. Lee Adamson and Mr. Costas Vlachos. Uh, my name is Marina Aliferopoulou. I am a Greek attorney specialized in uh, marine insurance, uh, chemical and oil pollution. My question is, uh, what are your precautions uh, in case of a chemical accident from an LNG or LPG, especially now that the HNS Convention on Hazardous and Noxious Substances are, is not yet uh, in force? Thank you. Uh, Mr. Vlachos, please. Uh, thank you for this uh, question. One uh, significant parameter for the implementation of uh, the LPG as a fuel, because I spoke uh, for the LPG, uh, Antonis spoke about LNG, it is uh, the risk assessment that an operator has uh, to do uh, for uh, using the LPG in the, uh, in the NG room. There are safety issues and uh, my company in, uh, at the beginning of June uh, ran a risk assessment in uh, Norway along with uh, the makers of the main engine, uh, the makers of uh, the cargo systems, a classification society, the U.S. Coast Guard and uh, a shipyard. Everybody that means that, uh, and we put down all the hazards that are associated with the use of a low flash point uh, LP, uh, um, I mean, uh, fuel as it is the LPG. And uh, we have concluded with the safety precautions that uh, we have to take. And uh, all of them, of course, uh, are applicable and will be applied before we go to the solution for using the LPG as a fuel in the NG room. It is not a threat, it is a due diligence work that has to be done and believe me, the LPG and the LNG carriers are the vessels with the less accidents uh, worldwide and that's happened because of the high precautions that are taken on those vessels, both from ship personnel and shore personnel, and this is the reason that we avoid the accidents, because of the due diligence that we do. Unless, uh, thank you, Kostas. Unless Lee has something to add, let's go to the next question. I, I could just add something. Um, <laughs> it's, uh, um, I'm sure you're all aware, but uh, a, an IMO uh, mandatory code, uh, safety code for ships using low flashpoint fuels uh, entered into force on the 1st of January 2017. I know that doesn't directly address the question, um, but I think it's uh, important to bear that in mind in the context of uh, questions about safety and using low flashpoint fuels. There is a mandatory safety code. It entered into force on the 1st of January 2017. Okay, thank you. Uh, another question? Sorry, sorry, <laughs> Please. 
Harry. Uh, good evening. My name is Kailas Petragakos, and I have a question for Mr. Adamson. Uh, he is the PR of uh, IMO, and IMO is part of the United Nations. Has the United Nations questioned the study that IMO received on the decarbonization uh, and the desulfurization of the atmosphere, and especially the, uh, the ships? And uh, I, I come to that question basically because what is the issue of decarbonization? Is it not the global warming? So what do we do now? Can you explain to me what we're doing now by installing the scrubbers? Because Mr. Panos has mentioned something, and I don't know whether IMO has heard what he has said, and while he's a member of, of the committee. Thank you. You see how popular IMO is here. Huh? <laughs> um, I'm not 100% sure that I fully understand the question, but let me have a go. Um, IMO reports its work on this issue, greenhouse gas, um, greenhouse gas emission reduction, back to the, uh, the Conference of Parties to the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change, which is the body that first... Global warming. Global warming, not climate change. Global warming. Please. The issues of global warming and of climate change and of greenhouse gas reduction um, fall within the auspices of the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change, it was that body that gave IMO and ICAO the mandate to um, pursue those reductions um, from the specific industries that they regulate. IMO reports its progress back to every single convention of parties um, to that convention um, and will continue to do so. So if the question is, does IMO report to the UN what it's doing or, or the surveys that it's received, I, I think the only answer I can give you is yes, that it does, and, and that's the way that it does it. But IMO has its own mandate to pursue uh, these issues with regard to shipping. It, 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 um, it has that from the UNFCCC. Panos, you want to add something? Yes, I, uh, Panos, one minute. I, I think that I understand that you, are, you have the mandate, but have you examined the studies that you received about uh, the impact that it will have? Can I, I, I think that Panos will reply. I'll reply by saying that I'm more IMO than Mr. Lee here. Uh, member states are the IMO. They take the decisions. Mr. Lee works in the Secretariat of IMO, and after the member states take the decisions, he makes sure that everything is done right, um, it's distributed, it's implemented, and so on. So he's not IMO. He's not the decision maker. It's the member states who decide what to do and what regulation they have to enforce. So don't blame him, in other words, <laughs> I, I, I'm, I'm saying. Uh, and, and so classes do not decide either. Eh? It's the yeah. decision makers are, are if you yeah, don't like a decision, Panos, you should blame the decision makers. Panos, you mentioned that uh, the, the SO reduces the temperature in the air. And we know that CO2 increases the temperature in the air. 
So by using shrubbers, uh, we increase the uh, burning of CO2 and we do not allow the SO to go to the atmosphere. So what do we do? We defeat the goal of decarbonization or we defeat our aim to stop the global warming because climate change, uh, the reason I'm saying climate change does not, that it should not be around, is climate change is part of the environmental engineering, which Congress, by the way, is questioning where are we going? So why should we call it climate change? Global warming, that's what I've learned in 1973, that's what I'm saying now. Harry, allow, allow us to discuss it uh, in more extent uh, outside. Uh, I think we kind of exhausted our time. Uh, please join me in giving our distinguished panelists a round of applause. Thank you very much for your attention.